ahead and take your Bible this morning, and I want to invite you to take it, be turning with me to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, uh, chapter 5. Last week, I began really a six-part teaching series on the home that uh, I intend to stretch from Mother's Day, which was last week, uh, to Father's Day in just a few weeks. And I really wanted to spend some time addressing the most fundamental relationships that we have with one another, uh, and in particular those relationships within the context of the home. Uh, Our closest relationships are found with those who live in our own homes, whether you be husband, wife, uh, parent, children, children to parents. But the most fundamental relationship really that makes up the home is that between Uh, husbands and wives. The home really is the basic building block of society, and if that's the case, then marriage is the basic building block of the home. Uh, Before children ever came along, we read in Genesis that God brought Adam and Eve together as man and wife, and the two became one flesh. Uh, Some years ago, there was a Pew Research survey along with Time Magazine, that asked if the American public believed uh, that marriage was becoming obsolete. And an astounding 40% of respondents to that survey uh, said yes. Among those in the traditional marriage, uh, marrying age range, which is 18 to 29 years old, the number was four points higher at 44%. In that same survey, it was entitled The Decline of Marriage and Rise of New Families. Uh, It recorded a a number of other shocking statistics about the state of marriage and the family in our country. Uh, For example, in 1960, the survey uh, said that 72% of all adults and 68% of people in their 20s were married. You fast forward 50 or 60 years, those numbers have dropped significantly to 52% and 26% respectively. And so given the current state of affairs in our society, it's all too obvious that the concept of marriage and family that most people have nowadays is in contrast to God's design that we see in the pages of Scripture. And folks, things are serious when four in ten people agree that the most basic institution of society is becoming obsolete. And so our culture's departure from the divine design, it merely shows what's been true from the beginning, and that's this, that sin has affected every part of human life. And marriage, the family, certainly is no exception. Uh, and, And by the way, this has not come under attack in our society all at once. Marriage, the home, it's been attacked since a serpent slithered into God's garden all the way back in the beginning, claiming to offer something better. So because of sin and the presence of brokenness, the fact that we are not perfect people, uh, marriage is a challenge. Uh, It's something that takes work. And that's true, it doesn't matter how young you are, it doesn't matter how old you are or how many years you've been married. Uh, Dr. David Jeremiah, told a funny story about a couple who were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And when the festivities ended, the woman turned to her husband and said this, "Uh, you know, we've been married 
for 50 years, and most of those years, we've just been miserable. We've fought like cats and dogs every day. We've disagreed on nearly everything, and I'm convinced that we can't keep going on like this. So I've made a commitment that I will pray that God will help us solve this problem. I'm praying that he'll go ahead and take one of us home. And when he answers my prayer, I'm going to go live with my sister. Now, that's a, that's a worst case scenario right there, but it illustrates the point that relationships are tough. Marriage is tough at times, and that's why the divorce rate is so very high in our country. Um, I've heard it said that as many as eight in 10 people in our society have either been directly impacted or indirectly impacted by divorce. And for some folks, just the mere mention of this subject brings back painful wounds and memories from the past and feelings that they would rather forget. But the fact remains that marriage is under attack in our society, and the reason it's under attack uh, from the enemy of all souls is because it's such a very important foundational society, uh, 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 institution in society. And that's why it seems to be in so much trouble today because the enemy wants to level his attack against that which God himself has designed. Now, with that being said, I want you to turn with me here to this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and in particular, Ephesians chapter 5. You'll notice with me, beginning in verse number 22, stretching all the way through verse 33, uh, the Apostle Paul gives what perhaps is the most lengthy passage of Scripture found in the New Testament on the subject of marriage, Uh, the relationship between wives to their husbands and husbands to their wives. And beginning in verse number 22, the Apostle Paul says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, there's no relationship in life that carries more potential for intimacy and closeness with another human being than the marriage relationship. And yet at the same time, there's no relationship that carries more potential for conflict 
than the marriage relationship. And that phrase, battle of the sexes, is a phrase that exists for a reason. Marriage is a relationship between two imperfect people. And left unchecked, sin in the heart will wreak havoc in the home. Now, by way of context, when the Apostle Paul came to the city of Ephesus on his second missionary journey, um, it was long about 53 AD, uh, he didn't stay very long. However, he did come back uh, approximately two years later, and uh, he made Ephesus really the base of his outreach throughout all of Asia Minor. And uh, the 19th chapter of Acts tells us that Paul ended up staying there for more than two years. And by the time that he had left, he had established a strong, vibrant church there in the city. And if you fast forward from that moment, a decade, uh, Paul writes back to the church in Ephesus from the city of Rome. And though the letter is written to the Ephesians, more than likely this was a circular letter that Paul intended to be read among all of the churches there uh, throughout Asia Minor. I've mentioned this to you before in previous studies, but um, the city of Ephesus was really a hotbed for idolatry. Uh, the temple of Diana, one of the seven, seven wonders of the ancient world, was located there in the city. And uh, that temple was really a magnificent structure. It was held up by 127 pillars. It was perhaps the first uh, building in human history that had ever been constructed entirely of marble. And it was devoted to the worship of the Greek goddess Diana or Artemis. But it was also sort of a, a depository for wealth. And uh, it became sort of the central bank for all of Asia. And treasures were housed there within the temple of Diana in the city of Ephesus. And understanding this is significant because in these chapters that make up the epistle to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul describes the church as being a temple for the Holy Spirit. And as such, it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. And as Paul begins his letter in the first chapter, he wants the believers to know that they have been given unsearchable riches in Jesus Christ. That is, a depository of wealth uh, has, has now been applied to the individual believer. You have access to spiritual riches and resources through faith in Jesus Christ. And so like most of his letters, the first part of Ephesians is doctrinal, and the second part is practical. In the first three chapters, Paul describes the believer's wealth. Uh, he gives doctrinal instruction, all that we've been given in Jesus Christ. He outlines that in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Well, then, in chapter 4, there's a transition to the practical. If in the first three chapters, Paul describes the believer's wealth, in the last three chapters, uh, Paul describes the believer's walk, uh, the way that we live our lives. If I were to say it another way, the first half of Ephesians focuses on what we've been given in Christ, and the second half points to the practical ways that our lives should reflect what we've been given in Jesus Christ. 
We inherit spiritual wealth by faith in Christ, and then we invest that wealth through obedient living. And that's what he's saying there, beginning in chapter 4, moving on into chapter 5, where he outlines relationships. And in particular, the relationships that characterize the home. And the point is, we've got to draw on the resources, the vast resources that we've been given in Christ as we seek to establish godly marriages and godly families. And so really this morning, I merely intend to introduce this passage from Ephesians 5, and I want to make three general observations about marriage. And and rather than getting into the specifics of this passage, we'll come back to that uh, perhaps next week, but, but I really want to speak contextually and show you how Paul's instructions on marriage, uh, it fits within the greater framework of what he's saying uh, in this epistle. So notice with me, number one, that marriage involves a purpose to live for. The first observation that I want you to see from this passage is that the marriage relationship involves a purpose to live for. You'll notice there in verse 22 where Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands. He doesn't, he doesn't just say submit to your husbands. He says submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then he makes this comparison of the church's relationship to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And he does the same thing with husbands down in verse 25. When he says, husbands, love your wives, he doesn't just simply say, love your wives. Rather, he says, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself sacrificially for the church. And so really what he's saying here ought to show us that marriage points to a greater reality than just the relationship that we have with our spouse. Marriage points to a much greater reality, one that reflects the very design of God for humanity. But even deeper than that, at the close of the chapter, Paul says that the mystery of marriage is that it points to the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his bride, the church. And so that means that our marriages are not primarily about us, folks, but they're about God. And that makes all the difference. And so again, part of this passage is part of a larger passage that deals with the Christian's relationship uh, to the church. And then there are relationships outlined within the home. And in chapter six, there are relationships uh, that are described at work. Paul's point is that the gospel fundamentally changes everything in a person's life. And this includes our relationships. So you'll notice in verse 31 that the Apostle Paul goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. And, and in referring to marriage and God's design for marriage, uh, he, he goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And he quotes directly from that passage where God creates Eve from Adam's side and gives her to him as a companion. And Genesis 2.24, this, this same verse is referenced at least four separate times throughout the New Testament. We find it mentioned in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, where Jesus is teaching on the subject of marriage and divorce. It's referenced in Mark chapter 10, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, and it's also referenced here in Ephesians 5.31. 
And so the point is that Paul is making an appeal to God's original design. And uh, you, you can turn there if you want to. You don't necessarily have to turn back to Genesis 1 and 2. But in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we're given sort of a, the first chapter of the Bible gives us a panoramic view of creation. And the second chapter gives us a more focused description of creation that centers around that first human couple, our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so when you think about the purpose for which we've been created, um, we learn from the first couple of chapters of the Bible that we're made for a reason. We've been made for a reason. After creating everything in the world, the crown of creation is humanity uh, made in the image of God. And the Bible says that the Lord God created a man out of the dust of the earth. He then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and that man becomes a living soul. And then man and woman, they're created with a uniqueness that sets them apart from everything else that God creates. Genesis 1.26, the Bible says, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God is the ultimate artist. And when he created the universe, he left his own mark upon that universe in such a way that the psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God. You can't look up into the night sky or look around at creation and the beauty of it and, and not see that it points to the beauty of the creator himself. The sky shows his handiwork. But humanity, however, there's something different about man and woman. Uh, and that difference is we've been created uniquely in the image of God. And that's what sets us apart from anything else that God made. Uh, in theology, we would, we would call this the imago Dei. And that's just a Latin phrase that means the image of God. It means that we've been created with the capacity to reflect the character of God. It means that we've been made with the purpose of, of having a relationship with God, that we're to bear witness of God. Like a mirror, we're to reflect the Lord God. When you think about God as a person, God is a person as, as, a, as a being. God is uh, intelligent and moral being. Well, so also is humanity. Now, I know that some folks, you might wonder whether or not they are intelligent, but the point is man has been created with moral intelligence, a sense of right and wrong. This makes it possible for us to mirror and reflect the holiness of God, and that was God's original intent way back in the beginning. But you see, when Adam fell something happened to distort the image of God in man as sin entered the picture and thereby corrupted all of our moral faculties. And now everything in human life has been tainted by sin. Every part of man has been affected and impacted by sin. We call this total depravity. So, so there's something innate within humanity 
that reflects the image of God, and this is the purpose, uh, the fact that we've been made for a reason. If you study on in Genesis 1 and 2, you'll notice that not only is man made for a reason, but he's also been made for responsibility. In chapter 2, verse 15, the Bible says that the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Hebrew words that are used there, translated work and keep, uh, these are words used to describe the responsibilities of those who served in the tabernacle later on in Israel's history. Some have even suggested that these words could be translated worship and obey. So God has created man and woman. He's placed them in a garden environment so that they might worship and obey and reflect his image. So man's been made for a reason. He's been made for responsibility. And then the Genesis account also shows us that we've been made for relationship. There's a phrase that's, that's mentioned over and over again in the creation narrative, and it's that phrase, God saw that it was good. Everything that God creates, uh, God sees it as being good. However, there's one thing in the creation account that God says is not good, and he says it's not good that the man should be alone. And so God determined to create a helper who would be suitable for the man, someone who was like him in every way, but also different. And the fact that God creates woman from man and designs her to be a helper, this does not um, mean that she's inferior, but rather it, um, uh, it, it implies more of the inadequacy of Adam more so than the inferiority of Eve. It's the fact that God takes Eve from Adam's side, forms Eve from one of his ribs. She's not inferior to him, but she's a suitable companion and partner for him. She complements him and makes up for what he lacks. And together they are image bearers there in the garden whom God gives the responsibility. Together they're to exercise dominion over all the creation. And so it's God then who performs the very first marriage in the Garden of Eden. And it's the same design that Jesus upholds in Matthew chapter 19 when he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then Jesus reaches back into Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 and he quotes the same verse that the Apostle Paul quotes here in Ephesians chapter 5. And Jesus says this, he says, listen, don't let man uh, put us, don't let man mess with what God himself has created. What God has joined together, let not man separate. The design in which God intended the human family to function, it's not subject to redefinition. And yet we know that sin has marred God's design for marriage and the home. And we find evidence of this very early on in Genesis, after Genesis chapter 3. Which, by the way, isn't it interesting that when Satan levels his attack against humanity, he seeks to drive a wedge between the man and the woman. Uh, he levels his assault against Adam after Adam is married. That's a pattern that he's repeated all throughout human history. It's because of the picture of marriage and what it represents. But you see a departure from God's design in the early chapters of Genesis. 
Uh, Adam's descendants. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 19. Uh, there's a guy named Lamech, and the Bible says that Lamech took for himself two wives. And very often someone will say, well, you know, the Bible... The Bible talks about uh, polygamy and bigamy and you know, you've got people in the Bible who had multiple spouses and that kind of thing. Be careful that you, you don't confuse what the Bible reports with what the Bible endorses. The Bible is just very honest in reporting the facts, but the fact that Lamech comes along and takes for himself two wives, and you see this throughout uh, history in the Old Testament, it's only a reflection of the departure from God's design. It's evidence of sin that is at work. Now, before I move on, I do want to mention something here. I think it's important. One of the ideas of our time is this. Uh, if you're not in a relationship, you can't be fulfilled. It's this idea that if you've not found your, quote, soulmate, which you won't find that language anywhere in the Bible, but it, it, it's, it's a... It's an idea that is perpetuated in our time. It's this idea that if you're not in a romantic relationship, you can't be a fulfilled person. Your life is less than others if you were single. And often, this idea creates great pressure on the part of people to try to seek their identity from someone else. And, and if you're a single person who's, who's listening this morning, don't think for one second that because you're single, you're less than someone else who perhaps is married or that you're unfulfilled as a person. The Bible clearly teaches that there are some who do have a call from God to singleness, and that is okay. Your worth as a person um, comes from Jesus Christ alone, not someone else. That You don't need someone else to give you your sense of identity and meaning and worth and happiness and that kind of thing. That, my friend, only comes through being in a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a purpose uh, to live for him, and that's what Paul mentions here in, really, Ephesians chapter 5 as he appeals to design. Now, I want you to notice a second thought, and again, I'm just dealing with this passage from Ephesians 5 in a contextual way but it involves a power to live in. Marriage involves a purpose to live for, but Paul's argument here is that it involves a power to live in. If you were to go back up and read the passage that precedes, that immediately comes before this passage on marriage in verses 22 through 20, uh, 33, you'll notice that the apostle Paul is talking about the spirit-filled life. And in chapter 5, verse 18, there's the command for believers to be filled with the Spirit. And then for a few verses, he describes what that looks like. In verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, or be subject to one another out of fear of Christ. And then he begins to move into this discussion about how the gospel impacts our marriages. And I think often we miss this important context when we come to this passage of scripture. We wanna to jump to the commands themselves. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. We jump to the commands themselves and we overlook this important truth from which these commands arise. It's only within the context of life in the spirit that the Apostle Paul is writing. 
which means that it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that our home and our marriage can be what God wants it to be. What is it that Jesus Christ does in the life of a believer or any person who comes to him in faith is that he restores the image of God in man. Fullness of life in the spirit. This is what God has in mind for every person. This is what he wants for you as a believer. He wants you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's why we need to keep in mind that Christian marriage always involves three parties. Involves a husband, a wife, but also Almighty God. And the key to a successful Christian marriage involves being filled with the Spirit. And the filling of the Holy Spirit that refers to His control over my life, His empowerment in my life uh, to enable me to live the Christian life. And so when you look at these instructions for marriage, given in the context of a Spirit filled life, All of this will take on new meaning for you as a person. And it's very encouraging because the power you need to establish a godly home, it's not left up to you. And sometimes I think that we we miss this. We think, well, I just am so lacking when it comes to the ability to be able to love my wife the way that my my wife needs to be loved or love my husband the way that he needs to be loved or raise my kids Friend, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has given you every resource that you will ever need. You just simply have to appropriate those resources by faith. So God has given us the tools and the resources that we need as husbands and wives to walk together. It's not simply a matter of me gritting my teeth and trying harder. Yeah, discipline's involved and effort's required, but before it's me relying upon my own strength, it's me as a, as a man dying to myself and by faith consciously living my life in the presence of the Spirit and seeking the filling of the Spirit in my life. You go back a few verses there in Ephesians 5 and you'll notice Paul's appeal. Verse 14, he says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he says that we're not to be drunk with wine, but we're to be filled with the Spirit. So, so he's saying that the Spirit of God must control our lives so that we're alert spiritually, so that we're wise spiritually, so that we stop being foolish spiritually. God gave us his Spirit because he knows something that we tend to forget, and it's this. It's impossible for us to live the Christian life on our own. If you could, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. His power would not be necessary. I mean, remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 15. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say we could do a few things. He didn't even say that we need his help. The Christian life is a supernatural life, which means we need supernatural ability to live it. And the only thing that makes you more powerful now than before you were saved is the presence of the Spirit of God who lives in you as a believer. So you've got to look at marriage then from the perspective of what you have been given as a believer in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God lives in you to empower you 
to obey the commands that are given here in Ephesians chapter 5. You remember what John says in 1 John chapter 4, greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. There's a greater power at work in your life as a believer than any power anywhere in the world. You think nuclear power is something to harness. Listen, let me tell you, the power that you've been given by the Spirit of God who lives in you, he will empower you to love your spouse, to be the spouse that God's called you to be. And it involves you in humility on a daily basis, dying to yourself and making the conscious decision to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. And let me tell you something, folks. Our failure to understand this is what makes up for at least 99.9% of the problems in Christian marriages. We're often too full of ourselves and not filled with the Spirit. James says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that wage war in your members? In other words, he's saying selfish desire is what often results in conflict. Outward conflict can often be traced back to the presence of selfish desire. That's the number one culprit behind marital conflict. Selfish desire on the part of one party or both parties. Kind of reminds me of an epitaph that a man had etched on his tombstone. Said something like this, beneath these stones do lie back to back my wife and I. When the last trumpet the air shall fill, if she gets up, I'll just lie still. Now listen, some folks constantly live their life like that, just at odds with one another. They live at odds with one another, they die at odds with one another. Why such conflict? It's because of who is in control. Selfish people will always be at odds with others in their lives. And the focus of their heart, it's getting and not giving. And see, oftentimes we, we fundamentally approach the marriage relationship uh, as if it's something that I myself am getting. And if you approach marriage with that attitude, you're gonna miss the point. It's not a relationship that's focused on you getting, but on you giving. And marriage is you determining to serve someone selflessly, sacrificially for the rest of your life. The thing is, when I'm in control, it's an utter disaster. But when I'm under control, then I have access to a power that enables me to do all things. And that's why conflict in marriage most always results from a heart that is self-directed rather than spirit-led. So again, it's so important that we understand this context here for marriage that, that Paul is talking about. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Know that it's within the context of a life that is submitted to the spirit of the living God. And the power then that you're able to draw from in your marriage, it's available. So, so marriage involves a purpose to live for, a power to live in, but then notice finally that Paul says that it involves a principle to live by. A principle. And, and what is that principle? Well, before he transitions to this passage on, on wives and husbands, you'll notice in verse 21 he says that all of us are responsible to submit to one another. 
So submission is not just something that applies to a wife, ladies. But guys, this is something that characterizes all of us, all of our relationships in, in, in the Christian life. Submission is to characterize those relationships. Spirit-filled living means that we're submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. In fact, you, you go back through those verses, verses 22 through 33, and look at how often Christ is mentioned in these verses. Wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. The husband's the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and so on and so forth. So within these verses, Paul presupposes that believers are living under the authority of Jesus Christ. Our authority on the issue of marriage is the word of God, not what the culture around us says, not popular opinion. Our authority on the subject of marriage is, is God himself as he has outlined it in the pages of his word. And a believer who is living in submission to the authority of God's word will have no problem with these commands that are given to husbands and wives. So again, all of us have an obligation to be humble and submissive in our relationships. That principle governs all of our relationships that Paul mentions in verse 21. We're to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That word be subject there translates a Greek word that's a military term that means to rank under. The idea is that spirit-filled believers rank themselves under one another rather than exalting themselves over one another. The idea is that of relinquishing your rights in favor of another. And you remember this is the same principle that Jesus said characterized the relationships of his disciples. Uh, on one occasion they were arguing back and forth about who was the greatest. And Jesus says, listen, you know that the, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be his servant. Whoever would be first must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, the man or woman who's filled with the Spirit does not insist on being first, but is willing to rank themselves under another. And listen, the cause for so much marital conflict is the desire to want to be first in some issue. So Paul carries this principle then into the marriage relationship there in verse 22. It's to characterize every relationship that we have. You get into chapter six, you'll notice that Paul is even going to conclude uh, this letter with a general call to arms by reminding us of the nature of spiritual conflict. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. And isn't that interesting that on the heels of him outlining uh, the most fundamental relationships that we have, that of marriage, between husbands and wives, the relationship that children have to their parents and parents to their kids, the work relationships. He then concludes with this statement of the enemy who's on the prowl. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but spiritual wickedness. The same serpent that slithered into the garden in Genesis chapter three to try to create a wedge between the man and his wife, he's the same serpent who's still trying to create that wedge. But let me tell you something, he is a defeated snake. I was mowing my grass a couple days ago and I saw two snakes in the yard as I was mowing. One of them got away from me, he was a pretty big thing, but let me tell you, the other one, I got him with the lawnmower. And I believe that I have Bible on this, but I think every time you see a snake, you have a mandate to crush the head of that snake. My grandmother used to say that the only good snake is a dead snake. I believe that. The snake is the only creature that has, has, that's under a curse. But the symbolism there of the serpent whose head has been crushed, it's a picture of redemption. And it's a picture of what Jesus Christ has done to save us through his death on the cross in our place. And through his resurrection, Jesus Christ has defeated the enemy who wants to divide husbands and wives and parents and children and drive a wedge into the home. And if the devil can get a wedge driven into the home, you see, then he can undermine what happens in the church. Because for the most part, no church will be as strong as the individual homes and marriages and families that make up that body. And that's why I'm saying marriage, before it's ever about you, my friend, it is something that points to a much greater reality. It points to God. It points to the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church. And so we look at the state of marriage in, in our society. It shouldn't be surprising to us that the culture we live in, there's a radical departure from God's design. That's the way it's always been because humanity is in rebellion against God. But the more fundamental issue is this issue. What about my life as a believer? As a believer, am I someone, I am, I am, I'm not putting myself in a place over scripture, but in submission, I, I know that I'm under scripture. And the authority of scripture is binding on my life as a Christian man, as a husband, as a wife. So maybe some questions to consider for yourself as I sort of bring this to a close this morning is this. First and foremost, am I saved? Am I saved? Do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ is my Savior? If I died today, I would go to heaven. Because the thing is, if a happy home is something that you really want, and, and if you're not a believer, the first step is you yielding your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and in faith committing your life to him, believing that he died as your sacrifice for sin, that he rose again from the dead. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're saved, then another question that you should ask would be this question, am I submitted as a believer, have I placed myself under the authority of the word of God? Because that's where it begins. I know the world often looks at God's design and says, you know, that just seems so backwards and so archaic. I think I've got a better idea. But that's the way of the world. But you can't improve on what God himself has designed. 
He's the creator, and as such, he knows how his creation ought to function. And then a final question you should ask would be this question. Am I filled with the Spirit? Have I yielded my life today to the Spirit's control? You know, the happiness often that we want in marriage and the happiness that we want for our families and in our home, we miss that that's really a byproduct. Happiness is never to be the goal in a person's marriage or in a person's home. Happiness will be a byproduct that will be produced as you as a believer submit to the Spirit's control. So right there where you are this morning, can I invite you to pray with me? With heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're not a believer this morning, I would so encourage you while you have an opportunity to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Christian husband, Christian wife, is your marriage submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Are you walking in obedience to the Lord's commands? Submitted to the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. If there seems to be obstacles in your life this morning and in your marriage this morning, can I just encourage you, by faith, commit those obstacles to the Lord. He's a mountain mover. And he'll give you whatever strength you need. He's already given it to you, believer. By faith, you simply have to appropriate it. Lord, thank you for the beautiful picture of marriage and how it's such a beautiful picture of this mysterious relationship that Jesus Christ has with his bride, the church. And God, help us to understand that ultimately our marriages are not about us, but they point to a much greater reality. Lord, I pray that our homes and that our lives would be submitted to the Lord God Lord, would you protect the family this morning? Lord, would you protect Christian husbands and wives? There's so much by way of the culture, so many ideas that the enemy wants to spread that are contrary to your design, oh God. Help us remember that as Christian men and women, we're walking upstream against the cultural flow. We don't want to be swept downstream by it, but we're walking against the stream. So Lord, have your will and way in our hearts and lives today. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.